The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to episode 11 of the Cinematography Podcast. All right, episode 11. We're like cooking with heat now. I'm Ilya Friedman. I'm Ben Rock. And uh, Ben, what's uh, what's going on? Well, you and I just got back from, <laughs> you say that so cagely, you and I just got back from a podcast convention, easily one of the nerdiest things I've ever done in my life. Yeah, it was uh, pretty nerdy, but it was also pretty darn fun. And I will say that it was a room full of podcasters like you and me and people, you know, far beyond our strata, like yeah. big, big end, high end people. NPR was big in that room. I got to shake hands with Roman Mars of 99% Invisible. Whoa. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. So here's the cool thing, though, if you are interested in podcasting and the fact that you're listening to this, you might be, you might listen to something besides this podcast, that convention or that conference or whatever you'd like to call it is probably the preeminent event of the year for podcasters. And there's a lot of podcast nerdy discussion going on with people saying, hey, are you listening to this? Or, hey, what podcast do you do? And I got a lot out of it. How about how about you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Also, like, uh, what software do you use? And, you know, I got to see a bunch of different software. Spoiler alert, I use Adobe Audition. Adobe Audition is... Uh, pretty excellent yeah but i saw like a really cool one there called uh, hindenburg Mm -hmm. i saw a demo of a thing called reaper that a lot of people use and these are actually pretty affordable yeah i i saw this uh i went to this like automation for podcasters discussion and i think it was a little different than the one that you went to it was very much for the most basic people but there essentially was like a system where you could record sound bites and then play them back like in bits and pieces to do your piece Mm. put it all together it was kind of like a sampling keyboard but for podcasters and i thought wow i would never use this but for someone else out there who just wants to record little bits and then hit play 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 they could do it yeah i mean and you never know you might you might come up with a good reason to use it and also you know just got to hear people's stories and and how uh podcasting changed their lives i know it's changed mine it hasn't really changed mine that much yeah mine either but it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. And I think it's really great for us to get together on these, I would say, weekly, but uh, that's a lie. Monthly, uh, and that's also a lie. But, you know, every couple of months we get together and uh, talk about all these different things that are going on. And some of that stuff makes the podcast, which is awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It was called Podcast Movement. Hopefully we can attend uh, every year and uh, make it pay for itself somehow. We'll see if, if, if we can make it pay for itself this year. Well, speaking of which, speaking of which, yeah, we have another sponsor for this episode. Holy crap. We have two sponsors in two episodes. How yeah, about that? Can you believe it? Well, this is a sponsor for a very cool piece of software uh, for Mac computers and it's called hedge for mac and that is actually their their url hedgeformac.com and uh, i'll put a link to it in the show notes but they have a free version you can test and try it but what's really cool about it is that you can copy your data very very easily and i do mean very easily like even without using instructions like reading instructions Whoa. you can figure this out and what's super cool, I never read the instructions anyway. Well, then this is perfect for you. So yeah. what, what's great is that you can make easy backups of your data, whether it be camera data or data that's already on your computer. And it does a checksum at the same time it copies. And I'd say it's about as fast as using it through your finder, which is pretty amazing to get that data verification and your copying happening at the same time. And as a sponsor, they've done a couple of really cool things for us. First of all, if you go to their website, which is hedgeformac.com forward slash cinematography, you'll save 20%. They're actually 
a, a discount for we have our first promo code it's our second sponsor and our first promo code we've really grown up a lot so that's hedge for mac slash cinematography and that's right and you will get a discount on their awesome software and i've used the software and have been using the software and it works great i'll also say that they have a special thing going on right now that they haven't even put out to the world but if you go to hedge for mac forward slash ibc this is going to be their first big convention they're doing the international broadcasting convention coming up in amsterdam big well, deal convention it is big deal basically it is the nab for the rest of the world it's the europe. nab with people talking funny as i like <laughs> to think of it and if you go to hedgeformac.com forward slash ibc they're giving away 25 licenses of the software and like they may have a partnership with lissy and they're giving away like some major amounts of storage so uh you can buy stuff at a discount you can also win some stuff for free i mean it sounds like win-win win-win so everyone go to hedgeformac.com slash cinematography so ben who is on today's show today's show is a really good friend of mine charles pappert and charles is probably best known as the uh the dp of every single episode Episode of Key and Peel that you've ever seen. Key and Peel has a fantastic visual style, and if you have never seen Key and Peel, what's wrong with you? Go to YouTube, yeah. Google something right now regarding Key and yeah. Peel. You'll probably get like thirty different sketches that pop up. Totally worth watching. Some, some yeah. great, great humor there. Key and Peel is like I, and we talk about this uh, during the interview. Like I feel like Key and Peel changed the direction of film sketch comedy from something that was kind of rough around the edges and uh, the funnier die style to something that's very, very slick because what they did was they emulated like top shelf movies in what they did and they did it on a hardcore low budget. Yeah, there were some people who were working in a similar sort of way, uh, I think with a much higher budget for a much smaller portion of their show. I'm thinking of like Alex Bono, like on Saturday Night Live. But when you look at like Key and Peel with like Charles Pappert, I mean, it's like an entire episode of nothing but those, you know, high end, high production value sketch comedy shorts. And uh, Charles has a lot more to say about Steadicam operation, about being on a very special movie set at one time in his life. Lots of other awesome stuff. Here we go. Charles Pappert. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I am here at Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California with Charles Pappert, cinematographer cam op, camera operator, what else? Guy. Producer. You, you have quite a few producing credits. I do. That's an odd one. That's an interesting one when people find that an MDB because they don't know whether they should be hiring me or me hiring them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get into that. We will. So, so Charles, well, actually, first, I'm just going to say for full disclosure, I first met you probably 2003, Sure, sounds about right. Uh, when, and it was in a producing capacity, you were one of the executive producers of a 48-hour film competition called Instant Films. That is correct, yes. We sort of have a little bit of a claim that, it, it, if anyone happens to know the, uh, the rivalry between, um, you know, Philippe's and Cole's downtown LA that both claimed to have invented the French dip sandwich mm-hmm. in the same year. We came up with Instant Films at about exactly the same time as the 48-hour film project mm-hmm. came into existence. So, But everyone knows them and nobody knew us. So <laughs> it, it is what it is. But uh, as far as inventing the 48-hour concept, it could possibly lay a simultaneous claim there. I'll give you credit for it. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. I've always been a Philippe's guy, by the way. Okay. Good to know. That was a little something where, you know, I've, I've worked in the industry for many years, but um, the, the elusiveness of... Being able to make your own product back in the day, let's say pre-late 90s, was I want to shoot something. And you go, well, let's see if I can find a way to borrow a 16 millimeter camera and scrap for short ends. And 
and it was always just brutal. And then you still had to spend money. You couldn't find a way to get the film process and transfer yeah. for free. So, um, you can never explain that to somebody who started making films within the last 10 years. Yeah. It's what a fucking headache it was to do it in the nineties even. Yeah. You did not own the gear. You couldn't own all the gear to shoot it yourself unless yeah. you were a trust fund kid or something. So it was always so much more of a hassle. And then late nineties with DV, suddenly we were kind of like a $4,000 camera looked pretty good. And then final cut pro came out and was, yes. all of a sudden you've got access. You've got the basic building blocks to make films. And I had a, a an XL1, and I got Final Cut Pro. And after about a year, I went, wow, I could be shooting stuff with this, but I got to get around to figuring out what that is to shoot now. I never had such freedom before. And hanging out at uh, the Sacred Fools Theater Company, where I had friends who were actors and saw this 24-hour version of uh, creativity that they did, where they would write... Fast and Loose, where it's a 24-hour play, loose. right? Exactly, yeah. I, so, I'm saying that with complete, uh, like, pretending to be ignorant of it. But yeah, but you've fact, directed many, many of them. I've directed dozens of them, and I'm a member of Sacred Fools Theater Company. Yes. Go on. Full disclosure. So, yeah, so I basically saw these guys doing writing, putting on its feet, and then showing to an audience a completed piece in 24 hours. And I went to John Sylvain, who's uh, one of the principals of the company, and said, hey, what if we, I think other people have the same equipment I have. Let's uh, let's add a day onto it for editing, and we'll do 48-hour filmmaking. It all seemed impossible until we actually did it, and it worked. And the films weren't that bad. And so we decided to form a company uh, and did that for a while and made hundreds of films. And it was really I wonder cool. how many films... Do you have any idea how many films they've made by now? I don't know the number anymore, but... Uh, it's a lot. I mean, you do eight in a weekend, right? Yeah, eight in a weekend, and it was sort of multiple festivals a year for about eight or nine years solidly, I think. Yeah. So it was quite a few. So the, the hilarious part there is I have all these executive producer credits on my IMDb from that era, mm -hmm. which looks, again, very strange to people trying to hire me to shoot things when they see they have, I have more credits <laughs> as a producer than they do. Yeah, but I uh, didn't set foot on most of those sets. And they're like, like a producer. Yeah, exactly. That's what an EP does. So uh, that was a fun era. There was a lot of creativity. It was uh, it was an interesting time, for sure. Uh, and of course, looking back at the technology, it was pretty crude, but good enough to tell stories. Yeah, absolutely. And the last the last few that they've done, I've gone to a couple of them. Like they had upgraded to like really high quality projection, and everyone's obviously shooting on DSLR or better. So it it actually looked up freaking amazing the last time I, I went. Yeah, it's it is fascinating to me how obscenely good you can make something look for just a, a small amount of money, even less than it used to be. Oh yeah. The investment. It's, it's really astonishing technologically where we've arrived and only slightly terrifying to those of us who are trying to make a living from all this. <laughs> yeah. Although like a friend of mine once when he got his first DSLR, he's like, well, you know, you went to film school and spent all this time getting, you know, getting to a point where you were any good at this. Doesn't it bother you that like someone can just go buy, you know, a, a T5i for $800 and do as good a job as you. And it's like, well, if all I brought was uh, like that I know how to set up a camera and point it at something, then something's very wrong with my entire education sure. and experience. Like, you know, there's, you you obviously uh, you bring so much more to the plate and the technology is whatever the technology is from from shoot to shoot. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we are all embracing all of these tools. The it's not as if the cameras that many people who are using for their low to no budget filmmaking are we look down our nose on that might be the same thing we'd use on a set the next day you know everyone uses gopros one form or another that's mm -hmm. that's just sort of a given um so the the equipment playing field has leveled out largely um of course there's exceptions to that but it's it proves more than anything it's not 
uh, is it was never about the cameras to begin with. Yeah. And the film stock back in the day. But creativity is creativity. Good storytelling is good storytelling. And that's ultimately where we're at. And as a cinematographer, my job is to make the, the final product look good. But it's always in service of the story. Which is the most corny thing we all say because it's like, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. It's not corny, performance. But it's, you know, it should be obvious. And it's important to to keep that in mind. But I think it's, that's the hardest part of the skill to learn is to be able to analyze the story and figure that out. Agreed. So, well, I want to get to your entire background and where you came from. But while we're on this subject, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. So there's a couple of kind of stock questions I ask people, but, but I ask it for a very specific reason. The first is that I think everybody has a very different uh, process when it comes to how they analyze a script. And when you read a script, how you go about turning it into whatever, whatever lenses, whatever lighting, whatever filtration, color coding, whatever it is you do. So uh, do you have a process that, that you could put a finger on if, if you were sitting down and talking to a director or if I handed you a script, like what's your process of reading that script and coming up with how you would want to shoot it? That's a very good question. I'm very proud of you, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> Wait till you hear my next one. Cause it's, it's a, it's a doozy. I'd like you to knit that question into a sampler and hang it on the wall. <laughs> um, so reading a script is, is pretty fascinating because as soon as I read virtually any script, images start coming up in my head. You know, I start to form a vision of the final product almost immediately Without having a discussion with a director, there's always a vagueness to it, though. I, it's, it really helps to sort of have an initial conversation with them to go, this is, this is the vibe that we're looking for, and then I can mm-hmm. form that image much better. And as we get into the prep process, that vision continues to crystallize to the point where I can exactly see what it's going to look like. So if I had to sort of storyboard or sketch out what we were going to do, and then I look at the finished product, I'm like, well, you know, that's pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. So the process for me, again, it starts a little bit vague. I have some ideas, but I need to know if those ideas are the right ones. So as soon as I can sit down with the director and hash it back and forth, and we find our common language on it, um, then it becomes more crystallized. And actually, for me, the space is very important. I have to understand what the parameters are of the location are, because I do Mm -hmm. so much location work, or at least I have. I mean, now it's probably about half and half stage in location, but... People walking around in a void is one thing, but once I get into the space and start to feel it, it starts to make sense to me how we're going to shoot it. So, um, you know, one of the tougher things for me is to not have have actually scouted a location before I get there because that that version of my vision is is not fully crystallized. So that's probably the three steps of it, the reading, the discussion with the director, and then visiting the space that we're going to shoot. Um. And if it's a location shoot, then the parameters of the space will start to dictate how I'm going to go about lighting it. Mm-hmm. I'll look for the windows. I'll look for the practicals and sort of hopefully see some version of light that's in there. If it's natural light, and we want to embrace it. Of course, sometimes we're going to say, well, we're going to block it all out and start again. But the practicalities of what I can do in there start to dictate what we would do. Um, and whatever the director's vision of how I want to do it combines with that. And I go, well... What's our budget? What what are our possibilities? If we're up three stories and we don't necessarily have the money for a condor, I've got to start thinking about how to make this look good without that. Yeah. Um, if it's a low budget job, if we have the, the money, then that makes it a lot easier. Really, the difference for me between lower budget and better budget projects is how much time I need to spend on figuring out how to shoot it. If we have the money, I'm like, cool, we throw this at it, the the 18K, the Condor, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If we don't have that, I have to sort of 
start with that vision and figure out how to downscale it and what my tricks and tools are going to be to do that. When it comes to things like lensing, like let's say, like if you read a script and you see it with wide angle lenses, for instance, like is, is there a process by which you kind of arrive at those kinds of ideas or you say like, yeah, this one's going to be really low key or I want to shoot everyone from like, you know, six inches under the eye line or something like the kind of specific little touches of, uh, of cinematography. Like where do those come from for you? Well, you know, it is an interesting question to sort of tackle because like I said, if I get too far in one direction without knowing what the director wants to do, then I've got to sort of pull myself back from it. Got it. So I'd rather start to develop an idea and go, what if we did it this way? And then have them go, yeah, 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 cool. Because if I start envisioning one way and the guy says, no, I want to go, you know, if I'm like, what about wide angle tableaus and relatively static? And he goes, well, I was thinking long lens handheld and kind of rough around the edges. I go, okay, well, let me completely revamp. Do you usually get a script without somebody giving you an idea of of the direction they're going in? It happens. Yeah, for Uh sure. Um, It depends on what type of project it is. You know, episodic television, we're rotating directors. So they might, there may be, there's a vocabulary throughout a show, but there's also how do we attack this during a scene? Yeah. The, the different stages that I've gone through as a DP and as a filmmaker, um, in the last few years, I've really tried to sort of jettison a lot of the original ideas that I have. And what's really important to me is when I come up with an idea, I look at it and I go, am I doing that because I've done it before or I've seen someone else do it before? I want to go the other way with it. Mm-hmm. So the first inclination, I go, let me explore the opposite of that. Um, which Can I, you give me an example of that? Sure. Let's say the car is pulling off into the into the sunset. Well, the, the most obvious thing to do is to crane up and, and away. Yeah. Because that's what we've always done. But is that the most interesting thing to do? Or is it just going to feel like a retread of, of everything that's been done before? And the answer is yes or no, depending on the on the project. A few years ago, I directed a uh, I directed and shot a music video. Um, it was about um, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And the way that the script was written... I felt was on the nose. So I took every idea that was in there and tried to find a different way to tell that story. It began with a couple arguing with their little girl outside uh, playing in the other room. And the guy was in a wife beater and he's slamming his his wife up against the wall and it was right in your face. And I felt like that's, I want to go the opposite way with it. We're going to get, put them in the way in the background and be with a little girl and out of focus in the background, you see this happening in shadows and barely seen, and it's all going to play in her face. And I thought there was a much more effective place to be because yeah. it was much more in the imagination. So I literally just flipped the perspective around from one side to the other. That's a very evocative idea. Thank you. I think it worked out. Yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. This is another kind of stock question that I ask people, but I, I think it's interesting, and uh, I get such crazy different answers from from dps when we talk to them but like if you were going to build the perfect director to collaborate with you what would you want that director to be like do you want them to hand you a shot list and say we're going to do this do they want do you want it to be someone who you collaborate with to figure out all that stuff do you want it to be someone who figures out the grammar of the film or or leans on you more to figure out the grammar? any any like what what is the perfect collaborative 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 relationship uh for you with a director i think probably the best experience that I had collaborating with a director was on Key and Peele. Um, so that was a sketch show for Comedy Central where we... Yeah, I think I've heard of that. I'm, uh, I'm listen, not, not everyone's <laughs> heard of it. I don't like to be sort of like, oh, yeah, I some, some people have the internet. Yeah. Um, 
You should be proud of that. I but, am very proud of that. It's that, one of it's it was one of the best experiences of my career. One it's of the such top, a absolutely. great show too. Thank and, you. and and honestly, one of the things that and I'm not kissing your ass here too much. And I'm not insincerely kissing your ass. Like one of the things I love about that show is that it looks like a movie. Like the, the sketches always look like a big budget movie, and and I think that's part of their grammar was to kind of drop us into something that felt like a bigger piece than it than than a comedy sketch. It absolutely was. Keen Peel, uh, when it first came up, was actually a very small, low-budget, humble project. We shot the pilot on 1D Mark IVs, which Whoa. was my shooting axe. I preferred them of the 5D because of the, the high sensitivity. Um, and I, that was my third pilot TV pilot that I shot on those cameras, actually. I've jumped around a little bit. We've been, somebody will, we'll, we'll start backwards in the DSLR era. But, so we shot the pilot on 1D Mark IVs, very humbly and simply and you know it's my f- second time working with peter atencio we'd done one little project before that a one-day project and um while we were making it i suddenly was like wow this is really kind of coming together this is the the material these guys are really funny this material is really sharp it was actually the sketch um called i said bitch i don't know how you write that but that's pretty it's much one where they like further and further away until they're and in outer space yeah it just keeps heightening the scenario gets more and more absurd and then they end up in outer space randomly. And I said, wow, that's my humor right there. Mm-hmm. That is where I love things to go, that that sense of the absurd. But um, the first time I met with Peter Atencio, the director, and he was going to be doing the entire series, um, I said, you know, Pete, and this was going back to around 2011, when a lot of comedy that was going on at the time, especially in, you know, on YouTube uh, and various other channels like Funny or Die, that was the era of it kind of has to be handheld and rough looking to be funny. That was sort of the, the down and dirty era that really, I mean, a lot of it started either like, with like funny or die kind of stuff. Yeah. Funny or die specifically. Right. Like the uh, funny or die had the landlord. We were coming off a few years of the office having influenced the handheld look. But really at that point it was the scrapper it is. Also there was the SNL digital sketches. But those tended to be actually kind of slick. A lot of the time, the they, music video. they got slick. But do you remember like Lazy Sunday? Lazy Sunday was pretty. Yes, you're right. That was that era exactly. It was the Lazy Sunday. Era. So I said, you know, when I met with Peter, I said, God, you know, for me, I would love to see us go the other way with this show, where we're embracing the genre and we're trying to make it as look as good as we possibly can. What I had in the back of my mind as a reference was the Ben Stiller show from Fox. I love uh, that show so much. Yeah, the Ben Stiller show on Fox. Which was what in ninety two, ninety three? I think thirteen episodes and out. Yeah, I think I might have. I was in. I was in college. I was in film school. Yeah, it was probably right around that right around time. that time. Yeah, that was great. I still reference the, Char- the Charles Manson thing <laughs> that they did. Yeah, Manson. It's like Lassie. That's great. One of the things I loved about that show, being you know at that point quite a bit younger, but really itching to get in this business, was the fact that every sketch looked like it was supposed to. It yeah. was all referential visually to what. Um, what the source material looked like. And I knew that they weren't making it on a huge budget. That was sort of obvious, but I, I loved all the different looks that they achieved. And I mentioned that to Peter. He goes, absolutely. That's what I'm going for also. Oh, great. So right from the beginning, we clicked. We had a common vision, which was to make, really make the visuals another character in the piece. That if we were shooting a, a sketch that was a horror movie, it started off so much like a horror movie that anyone tuning in would think they were watching an actual horror movie until the comedy begins. And it, added such a layer to it. So right from the beginning, we were both aligned on attempting to do that on our little basic cable uh, budget. And we found ways to do it. And as we the seasons went by, we 
didn't, you know, we, we, we kept increasing the scale because we could. Yeah. And a lot of people assumed that we got a ton more money towards the end when we would have some rather large scale sets and, and setups. And the fact was, we just got more and more efficient at ways to fool the audience into thinking they were seeing something <laughs> expensive something and we're using like you know i'm assuming you were shooting that on a on a red or an alexa or something alexa, like yeah. so you're shooting with a super 35 sensor mm-hmm. are you using the fact that it's easy to throw the background out of focus to your advantage yeah when we needed to if the yeah if we couldn't see the background yeah you know, throw it out of focus that's something when i worked on chosen ben kitai kind of said like the show wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for large sensor cameras yeah. because they shot that whole thing on like a you know on an f12 and the back on a hundred millimeter lens and everything in the background is out of focus because they didn't have the budget to dress shit right yeah that's that's a powerful tool i'm actually it's interesting when i think back to five years ago when the 5d came in all of a sudden it became like the craziest shallowest depth of field was, was the thing to do i rarely embrace that because i mostly shoot comedy and i feel like that's distracting yeah unless there's a, again you're doing a genre parody but in general i think that super shallow look doesn't really lend itself to comedy very well um, there was a lot of, dip, of depth of field porn that went on around yeah. that year too. Yeah, it was a little ugly, you know, yeah. big sensors and a 1.2 lens. We were just, honestly, we were all just so excited that we could find, like yeah. it, like there was a consumer grade camera that wasn't a one third inch CCD sensor. Right, exactly. And we could like, the background could be out of focus. For sure. I mean, I spent many years shooting in the video format and struggling with ways to kind of trick the eye into that mm-hmm. perceived depth. And actually, I, as I, I came up lighting, primarily in like two third inch broadcast format, I learned how to create the depth with light with, you know, with color and shade that have different pools and different um, planes of light because you didn't have the benefit of throwing things out of focus. So I had to do it from a lighting perspective instead. I have a personal belief that uh, cinematographers uh, either approach it from a lensing point of view or a lighting point of view. In other words, they either see the frame or they see the or they see the lighting and find a frame in the lighting. So which one are you? I believe that I'm more motivated by lighting now than by composition. And I think probably the reason for that is I spent so many years as an operator that the framing aspect comes so automatically that I don't really sweat it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so used to visualizing the, the frame that sort of pops into my head and I go, yeah, it's going to be a, a 27 mil lens right here. Yeah. Um, but the lighting to me feels infinite. There's so many more choices that I can make in the lighting that that takes up much more of my my focus and my attention. Um, and maybe that's not the right thing to do, but that's what I feel. Um, that's that's I how I approach it. I don't think that's right or, or a wrong thing. I, I, one thing I have noticed is it seems like people who came up in the electrical department, they tend to be more about the lensing. And people who, who came up in the camera department seem to be more excited about the lighting. Yeah, because we haven't spent that long in it. I mean, I feel like if someone asked me, you know, how long before you feel like you've mastered lighting? I'm like, I don't think I ever will mm-hmm. because I feel like it's limitless. There's so many more choices I can make there. And the fact is that's not true because when you place a lens, you've got three dimensions that you can move it around in, left, yeah. right, up, down, front, back. Then there's what lens, what is the focal length, and then how are you moving the camera? So it's just as infinite, but I think that process is so ingrained in me that I see that and I sort of get it much quicker without as much thought probably. So I think there is something to what you say. It's what you what you haven't been doing your whole life is the thing you're more focused on. 
Interesting. So, uh, well, let's let's go ahead and back up and just kind of talk about your your background and how you you got from being you know a, a lump of clay like the rest of us in, mm-hmm. into uh, into the camera department and then to to being a cinematographer, a, a lump of cinematographer. When I was twelve years old, my mom had a friend who was a, a TV director for the PBS station in Boston, and I got to visit with her one day a live truck at um, the U.S. Open tennis tournament. And I stood in that truck and looked at all those monitors and my head exploded. And that was like, I need to have something to do with this. Cameras are my thing. It, Growing up in Boston, it took me sort of years to find it because it just wasn't as available as it, you know, it might've been some other places. But by high school, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I was completely hooked by it. But you, in Boston, you're not terribly far from like New York City or... No, but in, and I went to NYU film school for a year. I for arrived. a year? So did you finish? No, NYU? one year. One okay. year. One year and I dropped out. And the reason for that was, you know, NYU is a great school. If you're in the mindset of NYU, mm-hmm. which certainly then, and I think still to this day, is sort of anti-Hollywood to an extent. So it was kind of cool for me to be exposed to the kind of films that I had never seen, experimental cinema. Um, you know, Louis Bunuel and Maya Darren and so forth. It was yeah. it was nourishing. And so I was a little restless because I was unabashedly interested in Hollywood filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And also at that point, do, I was... Do you mind saying about what year this would have been? Sure. So I went to college in 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, I had read about the Steadicam in 1980 when The Shining came out. Oh, boy. And I was completely fascinated. I loved The Shining, and I loved the shots in The Shining. And I was like, I don't know how you do that. Even as a 14-year-old, I was like, I have never seen shots like that before. And I read Pauline Kael's review in The New Yorker where she referenced the Steadicam. And I said, that was sounds it the, like was the Was that thing. the first movie that ever used the Steadicam? No, it, it wasn't by a few years. Um, the first movie was Bound for Glory in uh, around 75, 76. Oh, wow. So and way back. Rocky was about three movies later. Um, so the Steadicam was used on the original Rocky? Yes. The I, run up the steps, the triumphant run up the steps at the whoa. Philadelphia Art Museum. You just blew my mind. I had no idea. That yeah. That was if you go back and watch it, it's uh, it's pretty rough around the edges because it was still in sort of an unfinished state at that point. But Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, chased uh, Sly Stallone up those steps. So Sly Stallone is looking like a big stud for running up those stairs, but there's a guy following him with like 150 pounds of gear on his body, keeping pace with Stallone the whole way. Yes, that is correct. And it's probably not like, quite 150, but you know, it feels like that after you've run up a few steps, you know, I got to put one on around 84 and even though I was terrible at it and it wasn't comfortable, I was so excited about it that I was like, this is going to be my <laughs> thing. So that was a difference. But backing up, um, I'm in New York. There's movies going on around me. The thing that I was most interested in was learning about Steadicam. I asked my professors, no one had any idea what that was in 1983. So I cold called the biggest operator in New York, a guy named Ted Churchill, um, who advertised an American cinematographer and said, hey, I'm an NYU student. I'm really interested in Steadicam and I can't find out anything about it. And he invited me on the set uh, for the next morning. He said, we're going to be at the New York Public Library at 5 a.m. And so I trotted down there the next morning and and met Ted and was sort of very much in hero worship mode as a 17-year-old. And walked- So you were in college when you were 17? Yeah, I wow. yeah. All right. Yeah, I was a kid still. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Thanks. Well, we moved from England when I was uh 6 and uh you know, the educational system being a little different between countries, they they moved You me can up. say it. The British are smarter than us. It's fine. Sure. The British are smarter than than you guys. 
<laughs> there it is. <laughs> Boom. Um, European school system. I went to a very good school system in Brookline, Massachusetts, so I, I can't say anything bad about them. Fair enough. So I, there I am as a teenager on the set of what turns out to be what? Ghostbusters. Ghost, really? The the first Ghostbusters, absolutely. Uh, there's Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Helen Ramis, and I'm going, this is amazing. But even then, even though I knew them from, you know, Stripes or whatever, you know, I was still just more taken with the lights and the equipment and, of course, the Steadicam. Yeah. That was always my, my fascination. So I got to visit Ghostbusters a few more days. And what, had what were they shooting? Scenes. So was, was it Which the scenes? Opening? Yeah. The first scene was at the, uh, at the library towards the beginning of the movie when, uh, when they arrived to interview the librarian who got oh. the movie at the beginning of yeah, the movie. Yeah. Gets, I, I, I watched from about eight feet away as Bill Murray, you love the line, back off, man, I'm a scientist. No he shit. Did, like, 20 different reads. Oh, wow. And um, my, Could you tell, like, while you're on the set of Ghostbusters, can you tell, like, this is going to be a big fucking movie? I actually uh, thought it was going to be a huge flop. What? And, and not funny at all. Oh, I man. knew nothing about filmmaking, so the process of watching comedy get crafted... Because when you're a visitor, it's usually not that funny. Oh, yeah. It, the funny goes away because the, the, the pacing isn't there and the repetition kind of kills it. So watching Bill Murray do that line 20 times was fun to watch. But yeah. I was just like, I don't understand what this process is. Why is he doing it different every time? I didn't understand what an alt was as a 17-year-old. I yeah. thought that you're supposed to do it the same every time for continuity. But, you know, And then I visited them at uh, Central Park West when they were shooting the scenes outside um, um, Sigourney Weaver's apartment building. And all these like terrible looking chunks of ha- asphalt and half a police car sticking up out of the ground. And <laughs> everything, of course, was staged for the camera. And I didn't know what that meant. And I, I really thought this movie didn't make any sense at all. Um, so I was completely and utterly wrong about that. When, when, it came when, out when you it. saw it, did you did, did it all stitch together? In your oh, head? yeah, totally. And I went, oh, I saw that shot. I saw that shot. Oh, that's how films are made. One shot at a time. Yeah, yeah I get it now. Um, that was an interesting experience. But from that... I became friends with Ted, the Steadicam operator, and I got to trot along to a few different other films and watch what he did. And I very quickly was like, this is what I want to do for a living. Well, let me ask you, like on the subject of uh, because I think this is something (laughs) that I wish I would have known when I was in when I was in film school. You cold called the top guy in the Steadicam world and he he answered you. He, he, He got back to you. Yeah. And kind of took you under his wing for a while. Yeah. Uh, would you recommend somebody do that today? Like if, if you got that cold call, I'm not necessarily saying that somebody listening to this, but if somebody listening to this cold called you and said, Hey, I'd like to learn a little bit about what you do. Would you like, how open would you be to somebody or, and how open do you think in general, most people would be to hearing that? I can't speak for anybody else, but I feel like the experiences that I had like that when I was young, it would be terrible of me not to return that favor to the universe. Yeah. So when a young person approaches me, these days it's more likely to be email and introduces themselves and has the right vibe about them. I'll do whatever I can to help them. That's cool. Um, I, I, it's the only thing that makes sense. We have to do this in this, in this industry. We have to kind of pay that forward. Um, and I'm pretty good at telling when someone's got the right stuff and it's not about their experience or their talent. It's about their engagement and their fascination with all this. Yeah. Um, that they have to be a part of it. I, when I ever meet someone who wants to get in the Steadicam, they, what I'm looking for is that they're going to say, this is all I can imagine doing. This is all I want to do. And I go, then you'll probably be good at this because 
you've got the commitment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was, um, it was a huge opportunity for me to, to experience that. But of course the, you know, the other side of the coin was that I got up the nerve to do it. Yeah. I could have easily at other times in my life sort of gone, oh, I can't bother. I can't do that. I don't want to bother the guy. I don't know. I know this guy, he's probably in his early thirties now when he was in college at his school, they, uh, he had an assignment. He was graded on this where it was like, find three people in the industry you want to go into that you would want to have mentor you and write them and like track them down and email them. And for this guy, one of them was Stuart Gordon, the, you know, the, the guy who directed reanimator and, and um, wrote honey, I shrunk the kids and is, you know, kind of a, kind of a legend. And he reached out to Stuart and Stuart got back to him and kind of was a mentor to him for a while, you know? And like, I sort of wish that I'd ever had that thought (laughs) when I was that age, because I feel like you could, you know, like you don't realize that, you know, these people are just living their life and you know most people are not uh, upset when you ask them to talk about what they do for a really long time anyway so right i would never like to talk about what i do for a living never that would be horrible it's like on a podcast or something nah fuck that i'm not i didn't even hit record yet (sighs) thank god (laughs) so yes i i agree it's um i think mentoring is a is an important thing this industry and it's i feel like it's getting lost a little bit because of the accessibility of equipment I think a lot of younger people and newer people coming into this business kind of feel like, why do I need it? I have the internet. Yeah. I can, I can learn everything I need to by watching, you know, YouTube videos and, and reading blogs. I, I do a lot of that. Well, I think we're, we all do a certain amount. Listen, I learn stuff from blog. I mean, I'm active on a series of filmmaking blogs and there's people who are hardly even in the industry per se. They're either making stuff for fun. They're not necessarily making a living at it. I learn things from them because yeah. they've, They've got knowledge and directions that I don't have. Well, whenever I hit like a snag, like I'm trying to do something in After Effects or Premiere or something, and I'm like, I can't figure out how the fuck to do this. I will like just Google it yeah. or go to YouTube and write whatever it is, you know, looking for star filter for After Effects and boom, there's 500 uh, tutorials. Yeah, it's crazy. And then you're trying to find the right one. But I think within all that, there's it's very hard to, to weed out who's got the right information and the right yeah. balance. So how do you learn how to light? Well, for me, pre-internet, I read books and I read American Photographer and mm-hmm. I watched a lot of stuff. And then I was working as a PA and I watched some people lighting and learned from that and tried to kind of deconstruct it in my head. And each time I went back to the beginning where I was reading about it, it made more sense. And watching the film, I could start to deconstruct the lighting that I saw. It went round and round in a circle. If I had the ability to have had someone mentor me and bring me out on set and explain to me the effects of what they were doing, it would have been even more efficient, I think. Yeah, yeah. But I think for a lot of people today, the the idea of that deconstruction, well, who are you listening to? Um, Whose blog are you reading? Whose videos are you watching to learn that? And there's, you know, obviously there's some great information out there and there's a lot of misinformation out there. Of course. Um, and the, one of the complicated things is when you're learning, you're going to do a certain amount of recreating. You're going to copy setups. And I think that's a very valid way to learn a craft is because the, the closer you can recreate it, then the more you've, you've become successful at analyzing. I think that's a really good exercise, honestly. Like yeah. when I was in film school in one of, in one of our classes where we had to learn lighting, they would like give us a, f- a frame of a movie and say, you know, take two actors and light that scene. Yeah. And you learn a lot. 
you do. Know. Yeah, it, it gives you some basic skills. The the tricky part is then to bring your own creativity to bear. Yeah. But I think that when it comes to filmmaking, it's not like you're going to be doing the exact same scene ever again. So everything becomes, you know, a bag of tricks that you use and then you formed your own style and you're not ripping off people. And I think there's there's sometimes a feeling like, oh, well, I don't want to I don't want to watch too much of other people's stuff. I want to come up with it myself. But we're not, you know, we're not living in a vacuum. There's techniques that can be gleaned from any number of different people. Well, I mean, and also like, you know, a technique will come along like 45 degree shutter and then, you know, uh, Saving Private Ryan comes out and for the next 20 years, everybody's doing that in every action sequence. Sure. And at first it's the most innovative thing ever. And then for a while it's like, hey, it'll be really cool and you'll see it in Gladiator. And then after a while it becomes a cliche. Sure. I mean, another example of that would be um, when the slider became a thing three or four or five years ago for right around the time of the DSLRs, everyone started doing these little slider moves. I thought it was kind of funny because we've had sliders for years in the industry that we sit on, sit on top of dollies and we make little adjustments with it. But it was, I realized eventually this was sort of the introduction of little dolly moves for a lot of people that didn't yeah. have access to legitimate dollies. Um, it, it sort of seemed obvious to me, but it was it was for people who had pretty much only been shooting static on tripods or yeah. handheld. They'd suddenly had these elegant little sliding moves, and that became incredibly overused. <laughs> well, everything you could we could probably do like a whole podcast on what got overused in, yeah. in the wake of DSLR, sure, because everything got small and cheap. I've been talking a lot about what's happening in the sort of indie slash. We don't have the terms for it anymore. I, I feel like if I can come up with the right term, I'll, I'll I'll become legendary for it. But it's sort of the combination of the indie world and what we used to call the prosumer world and the, the hobbyist world. Yeah, I'm sort of very fascinated with that world. I like to sort of keep up on it because I think that there's some interesting ideas that are coming out of that, especially when I see someone with no money produce really good looking material. Yep. And I go, wow, that is amazing that they were able to pull that off with such limited resources. I'm like... What did they use to, to shape the light there? Well, tinfoil and, you know, like someone's iPhone yeah, to light it. And I'm, I'm inspired by that because I think there is an aesthetic there that's worth embracing. Well, you're an anomalous DP, in my opinion, in that you're used to working on big budget TV shows and bigger budget movies and stuff like that, both as a Steadicam operator and as a DP. And you're used to having these giant crews to marshal. But you also know how to work if it's like you and two other guys or girls or just you you can make do with whatever and you'll make a good looking image no matter what we give you, you know? Right. So in high school, I became really fascinated with camera movement and I did uh, actually start renting two-piece VHS setups over weekends and shooting bar mitzvahs and things with them. So when you say a two-piece VHS, that's like, so you've got a camera with a cable going to like a VTR that you carry around like a exactly. briefcase. Yes. That's what the, that was the home video tech in those days. The very guy who filmed my bar mitzvah had one of those. I probably filmed your bar mitzvah. You probably did. That's awesome. That's I, I remember you now. <laughs> so I would rent these things for about $40 my, on my parents' credit card and go and shoot a bar mitzvah for like $50 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have the equipment over the weekend. And my friends and I would run around and shoot little crazy things with it. Um, and I loved shooting handheld. I was I, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So when I sort of started to learn about Steadicam, that seemed like another level of cool. And while I was getting into all this stuff, um, I started playing around at the town's AV department, which was housed at the high school that had all this wonderful equipment. And we shot a couple of videos there. They produced a few instructional sort of 
videos for the school system. And one of them was my first job lighting when I was about 15. And the first shot that we lit was someone opening a door and coming through Mm -hmm. into a room. We start on the doorknob and we zoom out, of course, because it's the 70s. (laughs) Zoom out wide and then they walk through the door. And I took these two lights and I set them up on either side of camera, pointing at the door. And so, of course, we're tied in the doorknob and there's two big shadows and an X formation. And the the fellow who was directing it said, that looks a little weird. Can you get rid of the shadows? And I turned off one of the lights and there was only one shadow, but there wasn't enough exposure. I turned it back on again. There's a shadow and I went, wow, this stuff is hard. <laughs> and I realized, yeah, there's a lot to lighting. Now, cut to a few years ago on Key and Peel, we did a sketch that was supposed to be a bad local commercial from the 80s or 90s. or I'm not sure what time frame it was. And we used a period old uh, tube camera from the 80s. Oh, nice. Yeah. This was called Tackle and Grapple. Where do you even get one of those now? I got them on eBay. Really? Yep. And it was the exact same camera, the JVC KY 1900, that the town AV department had. So <laughs> they like $3 on eBay? Yeah, like 150 or something like nice. that. Nice. So I bought two of those. And I, you know, when I first got those and I turned on the camera and looked at the image on the monitor, I just started laughing because that's that was the imagery of my youth. That was where my first few cameras all looked like that. They were a very distinctive flavor to them. Now, could you have, this is the question. This is the, the producer question. Mm. Could you have just shot it on whatever camera you're using and use some After Effects crap to make it look like that? I think we're closer to that than we have been. And For a lot of people, they will run it through a post-process, like dub it to VHS a couple of times. Yeah. We did that a few times, I think, on Key and Peele. And I think Tim Wait, and I is that an that. actual post-process or you would literally dub it to VHS? No, literally. Literally. Because you, the, the tape like, artifacts... I, my brain just made an app called dub it to VHS. Yeah, and I'm sure that stuff is out there. But the difference that you get between trying to recreate that, I don't know if anyone makes this as a plug-in, and I'd love to learn if that's the case, that creates that smearing that you would get with yeah. the old tube cameras when you go past a light and it, and it smears out and the highlights have a certain look to them and everything's a little bit out of registration. There, there's a particular look there that I think is, I haven't seen it recreated um, digitally. So there is something that's worth doing. Believe me, I'm not the guy that sort of like arbitrarily loves to have this cabal of weird cameras yeah. for the very subtle thing. There's nothing subtle about the way these cameras look. It is extremely evocative of that time period. Yeah, yeah. Um, analog gear is hard to duplicate. Digital, Early digital gear doesn't have much of a look to it. I think that's the case with audio recording as well as as video. The early chip cameras didn't really have as distinctive a look as the tube cameras that preceded it. Hmm. So when you see that sketch, it's I think it, it really captures that crappy look. <laughs> and particularly because I set up two lights, two lower lights on either side of the camera in a recreation of my very first bad lighting setup. Did you zoom off the doorknob? We didn't, there was no doorknob, but we did do some bad zooms and bad framing. And I encouraged my operators to have fun with it. And I never had more fun, I think, in my career than when we were doing bad stuff on Key and Peele because it really made me just laugh. (laughs) It, to me, that was again, part of the, part of the comedy and it was really kind of enjoyable. And I, uh, that's the kind of DP I am that I don't mind making stuff that looks bad if it's supposed to be. Well, that's interesting, too, like, you know, thinking about, like, how to to shoot comedy, what you were talking about with the early Funny or Die or YouTube kind of stuff, where looking rough around the edges was sort of the punk rock thing about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was edgy and gritty and whatever. And then you kind of come in and and say, like, no, I'm going to make this thing have a character. And I actually feel like a lot of, I think if you look at filmed comedy before and after Key and Peele, you kind of changed, you course corrected it a little bit. Like, a lot of people copy that style now. Yeah, I think between... 
between us and the um the the film unit over at SNL who were doing yeah. a lot of that similar stuff at the same time I I think I think you're right I think there was a shift and I sense that there's probably was a lot of DPs on lower budgeted material that was happening, like Funnier Die, College Humor, and so yeah. forth, who are cursing us out because the bar we raised the bar. But it's not to a tough I mean, place. But the thing about it is, like, and you know this as well as I do, you know it better than I do, is that you can you can with the same gear you can make stuff look outrageously slick and 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 polished. You can make it look like a lot of different things. You know, given the light sensitivity of the camera, like sure. the, one, the 1D that you're talking about, or even if you're, you know, shooting on an Alexa or Red or whatever, like you can, with, with the same gear, you can make it look outrageously slick. And you don't really need very much to do it, you know, because these cameras, autom- like out of the box, give you a pretty good look. A pretty good look, yeah. I mean, I still think there, everything is a choice. Yeah. The degree of fill that you put in there, the directionality, every single light has to be the right light at the right intensity, the but right that's color. But that's right where light. your skill comes in. Right. And, and that then that's what makes you that that what makes literally every DP different from every other DP exactly because you throw any other DP on key and peel you know they they might do an equally good job to what you did but it would look completely different right it's a different interpretations so that was really what was fun about key and peel was attacking each sketch individually and finding the right vocabulary I mean some of them you know when you're doing a genre parody you you look at a piece of source material and you kind of go how close can we get to that yeah yeah and for some of those the joy was recreating the look of a $50 million movie in something that we shot in half a day or less with many more limitations. Um, and that was pretty delightful. Like we had a, uh, we had one scene that took place at a football game in the rain. And the reference that Peter used for that was the opening of um, the last boy scout. Oh yeah. That's a great scene. uh, Right. And you know, we kind of like broke it down a bit and in my head, I'm going, I don't, boy, how are we going to pull this off? We ended up shooting that. We could only light one direction because we didn't have time to move the rain towers. So we created a less than 45 degree wedge that we could shoot. And we staged four different directions, all looking in the same direction. <laughs> we cheated four directions. And guess what? It works. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'd made very few changes when we were, we, we didn't have time. We just did not have time to do it. So, and it, it's pretty cool that we were able to, I think, achieve a very similar look. And, and this maybe is kind of a loaded question, but on Key and Peel, how much the, did the director kind of rely on you to come in and fill in the grammar for a given episode or a given look? I wouldn't say it was much relying on me. It was always a collaboration. Peter uh, is an extremely strong visual director. He has a barrel full of references that he, for his... Uh, for his age, he really shouldn't have. I mean, I would throw out references from obscure TV shows when I was a kid, and there's enough years between us that it blew my mind every time I go, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I'd be like, dude, how do you know that? That show didn't get rerun. <laughs> you were like six when that show was on. How is this possible? YouTube. Uh, I guess, yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, it was it was almost always collaborative at a certain point where Peter would say, I'd like to look like this, and then we'd start you know, batting it around, but we got so good after we'd done hundreds of these things. Our shorthand got so good that it really didn't take us that long to find much of it. There was much, very little deliberation, I think, which was part of the fun of it. We got, we got to the point where I remember one time we were doing um, a sketch that had, had an opening piece that was supposed to be kind of walking deadish. It was a zombie. It was about a zombie extras. And most I of it played behind script. the scenes. I've yeah, seen, I've seen a lot of these. Oh, I'm so happy. 
So most of it plays kind of behind the scenes doc style, but we had to do a few shots that set it up in the language of the show. And as soon as we put it up on camera and put the actor in there and started rolling it, I remember turning to Peter and I go, we, this is what we, we did it again. We created this network TV look that was very specific, <laughs> you know, our second or third sketch of the day. And that sounds a little full of ourselves, but we just started so good at finding a shorthand to just blast into all these different looks. Ultimately, I realized this is a high point in the career. This is a lot of fun. How many sketches would you shoot in a day on Key and Peele? We started uh, an average of two and a half a day, mm-hmm. which meant some days more, sometimes less. We got it down to two sketches a day, I think by the third or fourth season, which was a big difference um, in terms of being able to get it done. It was a little wild before that. Um, and there were some sketches that took us all day to shoot and others days we'd do three. Really? Yeah. Pretty wild. And I mean, changing gears that radically, something that was very high production value to something that was very scrappy looking and weird. But that would be how you would kind of kind of schedule them out. So you would do like you wouldn't do like three Walking Dead style zombie pieces in a day, right? No, they were all based on location. So the show was almost entirely shot on location. So if they found uh, if our location people found a location that would work for one very specific sketch, they'd have to find something that was a push move that we could get to without going back in the trucks that was adjacent somehow. Mm-hmm. So stylistically that had nothing to do with it. It was more about, you know, here's this space. Like one day we did a 1950s Technicolor musical in the ground floor of an old house. And then we went upstairs to one of the rooms and we shot on one of the period video cameras, Obama, the college years. <laughs> I remember so that one. exact opposite, you know, uh, ends of the spectrum production value wise. And uh, I don't know if, if, if I'm going to include the answer in this depends, but like the guys to, to work with, how, how good were Key and Peele in terms of switching gears that quickly? Phenomenal. I mean, the show could not have been made if they were not so dialed in and so flexible that we had no downtime ever lost to them getting into mode. And that's why we were all such a great team. We were there ready to play every day, all of us. And Jordan and Keegan were tireless and always brought it. 100%. And there were some very, very, very hard days for them physically. Um, the aerobics meltdown sketch, which is a, a big favorite for everybody, uh, another one of our period ones, um, they had to do aerobics most of the day. That's not easy. I'm getting tired just thinking oh about that. Oh, my God. It was insane to watch. But they were they were game. They were up for it and always funny. What about like leaving room? Uh, and I think this is something, you know, worth considering too. What about leaving room for improvisation for them? Like on certain sketches, was it like, okay, no, this is how it's written and we're not going to, we're not going to fuck around. Or did you always need to kind of keep it loose for them to ad lib or do an extra take that they were just going to burn or something? Most of the time we did the script fairly straight, maybe with a few alts. There were certain sketches, usually when there was a guest star that they wanted to play with and let do runs like Ty Burrell came in as a Nazi a couple of times for us. And they just, they let him run. So they knew like you do. when, like you do, but very often when it was sketches with the two of them, there wasn't that much because they had already dialed it in and the writing so well. And there's always exceptions to that. But again, a lot of it was dictated on our schedule. We just didn't have time to play, you know, the, the sort of the Apatow model where, they do it one version on book and then there's 40 minutes of improv on everything that could not have fit into our schedule. Yeah. So we do it when it was required, when it was the right thing to do and when there was time. 
I always wonder about that. Well, and, and with something like Apatow, a friend of mine actually was a stenographer. She's a court stenographer, uh-huh. and she worked on an Apatow movie and had to had to literally like keep track of every ad lib that every person ever said, and they were constantly oh, rewriting amazing. the script while they were while they were doing it. And to me, it's like I, I mean, I'm not obviously down on Apatow, but I feel like you can tell with Key and Peele that the idea was really locked down, and that you guys had a really cinematic approach to what you were going to do. And it, the thing about that show is it never felt shaggy in that way. It never felt, it felt tight and honed and, and, and designed to be the way it was. There is something to working within limited means. You have to make your decisions right the first time. There's not a lot of room for deliberation and standing on set and going, I don't know, should we do this? Should we do that? We had to come in, get the job done and move on. We were, we were kind of a lean team that way. And I think that that put us into a good place because everyone had to bring their game every department every day otherwise we couldn't actually make the show for the money we were given did uh did having done instant films influence your ability to do this because i will say because I, I think i've directed seven of them at this point directing instant films made me way better at making a decision and just sticking with it and not not fucking around like locking one thing down and then the next thing and the next you bring up a great point, and that's probably true, because I think I directed 12 of them, and that that was, yeah, it was an incredible boot camp, I think, for all of us who were involved in, in the, back in those days. And you're right, you you had no choice. You, you couldn't go backwards on your decisions. Well, and the thing about instant films, too, which people who do the 48-hour film project wouldn't have have gone through, is that with instant films, you don't write your own script. You're randomly assigned a script, so you show up. And as a director, you pick a script at random and you pick an actor out of the actors that you guys had brought out at random. And then you go away and then I think it's 34 hours later, you show your film to a packed house. And so it's like, you don't know what you're going to do. You have to be ready to just, to just roll. Yeah. We designed it that way so that you couldn't stack the deck. Cause I think doing a festival like that in LA, there's always the opportunity for a director to procure an insane location that's going to sway everybody and excite them and, and then write the script around that. Yeah. And we really tried to foil that by separating out the writers, the directors and the actors. Um, but it did mean you walked in with no idea what you were going to do and how you were going to do it when you were handed a script and have to think on your feet. And I, you're right. I think that that did have a uh, make a big difference for me. So I could kind of it's almost like you're a jazz musician at a certain yeah. point. You're, you're just you're given the basics and you just go. And I think there were some days on Key and Peele when we were, I'll admit it, I think we all had moments of winging it. Yeah. There were some times when I was like, I'm not really quite prepared for this, but let's see what happens. And we, it worked out. But you've got a crew of professionals and they're all yeah. kind, of, kind of wanting wanting it to succeed. I mean, mm-hmm. you must have, well, you kind of just said it, but you kind of knew that you were on something, you were riding a pretty special wave on that show. Yeah. By the last season, I was already starting to look back and reminisce and kind of go, wow, this is a high water mark. I'm really enjoying where I am right now and hopefully I'll get a chance to do something that's this fulfilling again. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit, uh, back to, uh, you getting into doing Steadicam and camera operating. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of talk about like how you went about getting into, into that. And also like if, is, is being a, a Steadicam operator even like a career path today or would you have to be a multi hyphenate and you have a Steadicam in your truck? So after I quit film school to start working in the industry, I took the Steadicam workshop the next year. And I was working as a PA in Boston on local productions. 
and kind of always with a goal to getting into, into camera department. Um, and over the next few years, I started practicing on a beater steady cam. And eventually, I think about four years later, I was able to buy one. Um, I actually got a job working in a small market, Springfield, Massachusetts, shooting local commercials and corporates in a very small company where they would actually hand me a script and I could shoot it however I wanted. And I was effectively directing it, DPing it. I, it was like a, usually a two-person crew at most. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it was an, an insane experience. I did that for two and a half years. And they had a bunch of fancy pants Steadicam shots in those commercials. Yeah. Actually, I bought the Steadicam right at the end. Oh. Um, that's because that was my first legit job where I actually earned any money whatsoever. Um, that was also a really good experience at learning what worked and what didn't because every day was a new experience and i was also editing my own footage mm-hmm. um so that really was how i learned filmmaking was in those two and a half years and even though the material very often was you know guy a guy selling furniture screaming at the lens as they do in local commercials i always got the opportunity to do a few more creative ones here and there i have never once been like man i need a new couch i'm gonna go to the guy who screamed at me at two o'clock in the morning you hadn't, but apparently other people did because that was, that's a theme. That's oh, You can go all over this country and there's some version of that in the local mm, market. No, it's true. God bless them. The funny thing about it was when you meet them in person, they were you know perfectly normal. They spoke normally and then you turn the camera on and they just start bellowing yeah. and flailing the arms in the air. I think that's been replaced now by the blow up inflatable guys at uh, car dealerships. <laughs> it's about the same level of subtlety. But uh, so at the end of uh, of my uh, time in the wilderness, there shooting corporates and local commercials, I bought the Steadicam and hung out my shingle and started freelancing, and worked in Boston and Greater New England and a little bit in New York for about seven or eight years, and got to do some cool stuff. Uh, I also was DPing at the same time, shooting again local commercials, corporates, and then I started to really get the bug that I wanted to work on bigger stuff. You know, I'd I'd experienced what a large set was like in New York, and I just couldn't get there in Boston. The stuff that came from out of town, you know, the shows came from L.A. or New York that always bring someone with them. Yeah, of course. Um, And I had some frustrating moments where I got called for some movie called Goodwill Hunting, and they're like, well, you know, we got a Steadicam day. The guys are going to walk towards this bar, the scene where they go into the the Harvard bar. And then, you know, two days later, they they canceled the hold because they're going to shoot it handheld. So I would have, that would Gus have been God damn it. So I got frustrated because I was like, I'm never going to get anywhere. I'm not yeah. going to, I don't have, they would be like, yeah, you don't have the credits. And I'm like, but look at my reel. And they go, you don't have the credits. So I, uh, I packed it up and, uh, moved to LA in 97. Um, and within two years I had worked on several studio features as an A camera steady cam operator. I started working on ER and then West wing it just all happened. And so, awesome. so while you're doing this, cause you, you have a pretty illustrious career just as a steady cam operator, but yeah. do you have your eyes on, I'm, I'm moving towards being a cinematographer Yes, the whole time. Yeah. In, in Boston, you know, in small markets, you are able to have multiple hats mm-hmm. and it's sort of required. There's very few, I think, pure steady cam operators in the smaller markets. The thing was when I moved to LA, it's kind of like I got looked at and I was, well, which one are you? Yeah, you an operator or you a DP? Because we don't like both here. And I decided to go with the Steadicam because and the the conventional operating because I was my reasoning was I want to learn more about shooting. I get the opportunity now to shoot for these amazing DPs that I've only read about in magazines because I'm in LA now. So I did that. It was going to be like a a few years like that. 
So, so thought experiment. If you had at yeah. that time said DP, mm. I'm going to pursue being a DP. How different would that path have been for you? I'll never know, will I? But, but I, you know I, people who've done that. I Yes. I wish, in retrospect, I, I wish I had done that just mm-hmm. because I think it would have moved everything up by 10 years. At the same time, I had a lot of great experiences doing what I did. And, you know, camera operators have a saying that it's the best job, you know, in the crew. You're in the best place. Um, I think that's changed a little bit as we moved from film to digital um, because the viewfinding is not nearly as as sort of engaging. But it's a great job. Also, you've got a video village full of people who are judging your every move and coming up and being like, yeah, could you just not follow him so much to the left this time? Well, it's, it's less about that as an operator than it is the DP in some ways because everyone sees the image yeah, yeah. completely as opposed to sort of a bad tap image. Well, what about like, because you're somebody who's so used to operating and so used to being a steady cam operator or a camera operator, and when you're DPing, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're often not the operator, correct? That's right. I I almost never operate anymore. So do you miss it? I don't miss it. Um, I did it for so long. And I think back to that kid in high school who only wanted to have a camera on his shoulder. And that lasted for 20 plus years, maybe 25 years. I got to the point where I felt like I'd kind of done it all. That as much as I loved Steadicam, it was time for me to do something different. And I think that's just a personal thing. Once I'm done with something, I just kind of move on. So I rarely feel like I want to pick up a camera and shoot anymore. But when you're like, uh, so when you're on, I, I wonder this every time the DP is not the operator, which is often when you're watching the operation and when you're sitting in video village, watching the way the operation is happening, are you ever like, Oh, you're missing it. You're missing it, dude. It's right there. Or do you just hire operators who are just on the same wavelength as you? And they bring maybe even more to it than you, than you imagined. That's, that's the idea. I try to find operators that, bring to the table what I felt I brought as an operator at sort of the height of my career, the part where I was really enjoying the job the most, where I had a lot of ideas and I wanted, you know, I'd work with the director and go, what if we do this? What if, what if we do that? And, you know, get really engaged in, in there. And that's, that's the kind of operator I look for. Um, I'm not the sort of DP that wants my operators to be like a remote head that I operate for them. I want them to have thoughts and interest and, I love it when I'm sort of caught up with the director in the big picture. We've got to make our day and we only have so much time and how are we going to attack that thing down the road? And then the operator walks up and says, the scene they're about to shoot, I was just thinking based on the dialogue and what's going to happen next, what if we did this instead of the thing that we're planning? And they're they're getting into the story and the characters. Yeah. And, I, and we're both looking at them and go, wow, we hadn't even considered that because we're too up in the big picture. That's what an operator can do, a really good one. And that's what made me happy as an operator to be able to bring that game and be a collaborator. So that's what I look for in, the, in, in my operators. And I'm very fortunate right now that my A-camera operators, a young guy named Neil Bryant, whose Steadicam chops are phenomenal. Um, and his attitude is so great. And it reminds me of a younger version of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was just so excited about it, um, about you know, being a camera operator. So, yeah, it's really important who I have working for me, for sure. And that, as a result, I don't miss it because, again, I can focus on the big picture because that's really what my job is. Mm-hmm. You know, as an operator, you're engaged in the here and now. You walk in, you don't know anything about the scene, you read the sides, you watch the rehearsal, and you figure out how to make it great. As the DP and the director, you're already looking at the next thing in a way. Yeah. Because you're responsible for what's at the end of the day, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's 
you're, you're being distracted in some ways away from how to make the thing that you're doing the best it possibly can be because you're balancing so many other things in the air. I was just reading a, a story about Richard Donner doing the Superman, the first Superman movie and how they had like six units going at the same time. Wow. And I'm like, how do you even, how, how can you do that? Like they had a miniature unit and a Krypton unit and a, you know, and it's like, how I, it, it just boggles my mind how you can even manage that. Yeah. There was a, a music video that I shot a few, about five years ago, there was an era of a year or two when I was making my transition from operating to DPing that sort of fell into this music video world. And there was one time we were doing a very ambitious period piece that was supposed, it was like a 1930s thing and it had a shootout at the end between the, the band who are sort of the bad guys, quote unquote, and the cops. And then another group of cops come up. So it was a three direction shootout and we were losing the light. And I had to split us up into three units to shoot simultaneously. And I sprinted from one side of this field to the other. Yeah. Back, and every time I got to where I was, things had sort of fallen apart a little bit because it was we weren't set up to do that. And I'm just running around trying to spin the plates and keep them all from crashing. That's so rough. Yeah. When I, on the feature I directed, my producer basically, he said this to me, and I, and I always even visualize it. He's like, you just have to be willing to take your hands off the wheel and let the other person do their job. Yeah. So, you know, like when I was doing second unit for Toby Wilkins on Chosen, I respect the hell out of him, and he would tell me what he wanted, and I would go do it. If I had extra time, I'd do it my way too or give him a bunch of options. But it, it does take a massive amount of trust, and I think that there's kind of like a weird belief that if you have more than one unit – that the director and the DP aren't the actual director and DP, but really they are because everyone's just trying to give them exactly what they asked for. That is theoretically the idea. Theoretically. I mean, you know, there is an old bit about uh, cinematography, about certain movies having been lauded for their cinematography because of their beautiful establishing shots, which were all second unit. (laughs) Of course. You know, Todd Hallowell, who uh, who did sec- who was a second unit director for uh, Ron Howard on a on like everything from Backdraft to Rush, so it's like twenty years of, of of his stuff. Told me that on Apollo thirteen, he had T shirts made up that said, uh, "If it was easy, first unit would have done it." Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I've shot a number of second units over the years, and it, it is it's a fascinating setup because you get a fraction of the resources, equipment, and crew what you do generally have is a bit more time because you're waiting on something to show up from first unit. Yeah. But you're trying to create stuff that's going to get cut into the movie, which sometimes the scope can actually get big enough where you're like, this is not a second unit thing anymore. Oh yeah. But it just sort of gets larger and larger and you're going, wow, we're supposed to do what they're doing over there with a quarter of the people (laughs) in the crew. Okay. But then the fun is watching the finished piece and going, yeah, that's one of our, that's my hand that fit. Yeah, it's my sorry. Hands. I mean, that was the SAG uh, uh, stand-in. <clears throat> we won't say anything about that. Not my hand. On uh, on Office Space, which was one of the movies that I operated, the famous uh, printer scene, the printer destroying scene, mm-hmm. where the guys go out and it's sort of the rap video where they're destroying uh, um, the machine. Half of that is actually second unit that I shot in a completely different location on the side of a freeway in, <laughs> in Texas um, with other people like PAs in the wardrobe of the guys, some of the stuff looking down at the ground. And I can tell which it is because the grass is a different texture. Yeah. yeah. Um, But you know, and that's sort of an, if you're looking at the grass, if you're you're looking at the wrong thing, I I hate to be the one to make that, you know, like people always be like, Hey, if you're looking at that reflection in his sunglasses, like, well, you should get rid of it anyway. But like, seriously, if you're looking at the grass, you're looking at the wrong thing. Yeah. But it's just, it's, 
what I loved about that movie and in particular that scene is it became so iconic that oh yeah um you know and family guy did a parody of it and they literally were doing animated versions of my steady cam moves oh that, that's got to be surreal that was really sweet that's surreal that was that was a moment <laughs> you touched on it a minute ago but you but there was a moment when you decided enough operating enough steady camera moving into cinematography so what what was the moment or what was i don't know if there was necessarily a moment but what what made you make that decision and how did you go about kind of decoupling yourself from the one and and starting to pursue the other it was an interesting period because i've been doing steady cam long enough um that I became associated with the tool. Well, you had done it on like major stuff, like you were saying ER, but also like you were the you were the main Steadicam operator on Scrubs for how many seasons? Only I only did the first two seasons. Uh, it's um, still pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there was I I never worked on the biggest stuff. I wasn't a household name out in the you know I didn't do anything like the the Copa shot from Goodfellas that yeah. made me per se. I was just kind of you know I was a working. A working Steadicam guy. That's but a pretty big accomplishment. I, thank you. You know, it was it was it was all good. But what I found that was I when I was really starting to gear up and wanted to shoot more and more and doing stuff, you know, short films and whatnot. Um, no matter what I got as a DP job, Steadicam was always floating around in there somewhere. It was always connected. There was always you're going to do Steadicam, right? So after dancing around for about ten years of bouncing between my working for a living as a Steadicam operator and having the odd job and mostly the non-paid stuff as a DP, I finally went, you know what? The only way I'm going to pull this off is if I go cold turkey on the Steadicam. So when I made my decision, I said, okay, this this is it. This is my last show and I'm going to put the rig up for sale and throw myself into the, you know, into the deep. So sold the rig. And then the next few jobs I got, I sort of had to go, you do know I don't do Steadicam anymore. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we know that it's it's all good, and then you would get more into into the um, prep for the the project, and I'd say, okay, so um, this is gonna be a Steadicam shot, and um, you, I'm sure that's a line item you have in the budget. And they go, well, we were kind of thinking you would do it, and I go, but I don't do it anymore. And they're like, oh, please, and I go, well, it's gonna be impossible. I don't own the gear anymore. And they went, oh, okay, well, that's cool. I just imagine you in like your version of the bat cave with like the, the vest kind of in like the little, like <laughs> on a little Charles mannequin. Yeah, that's very funny. You're yeah. Looking at it in the dark, touching it. You know, honestly, for as much as I, you know, steady cam operators and their equipment are, it's a very tight relationship. I think, um, you know, in a lot of other aspects of this industry, gear is gear and you might have a fondness for it because you own it, but steady cams are something that every operator would sort of customize and I had a lot of stuff built that I spec'd and you know I think the only other job that's very similar to that is uh, audio mixer mm-hmm. uh, as location sound guys they've also customized all their stuff to the hilt so you get a certain but yours is also you can it. walk around and theirs is also they don't ever have to stand up yeah they got that all figured out right don't seriously they? god bless them but I will say the steady cam kept me in, in shape when I was doing it though that was that was good when I sold the gear, I actually found it remarkably easy to let go of that that affection. But I was also very excited about what was coming up. Mm-hmm. So it, and I was very fortunate. It really only was about a year and a half transition, and I didn't really suffer too badly during it. I dropped down definitely a few notches in terms of the level that I was working at, but it was so much fun to be doing what we were doing. And again, that was there was a bunch of you know those twenty thousand dollar music videos that were just wild and bizarre. Um, Way and, back when they had $20,000 to spend on a music video. I know, which seemed like nothing at the time, <laughs> five years ago. 
It was a simpler time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but it all it actually came exactly at the time when the DSLRs came in. Um, and I was involved with the, a few of the, the characters that were the pioneers in that, Vincent LaFerre and Shane Hurlbut. And so I said, oh, this is cool. You know, I never had the intention of jumping on something at the beginning of a wave, but I went, well, I want to get into this. And so I owned the, you know, my, my Canon package and started playing around with that stuff for the next few years and shot three TV pilots on those cameras, you know, legitimate, you know, for FX and yeah, yeah. Comedy Central. And the third of those was Key and Peel. And that was actually the last thing I shot on the DSLRs before I said, okay, well, that was fun. Now I'm going to move up a little bit. Grown up cameras again. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go to those. I think it was the time when we had to change out one actress from four different tops because they all moraid. Yeah. And, you know. Well, you wouldn't have that problem with a lot of the current crop. Right? No. But back then, that, we had so many things that we had to work around. Um, I really did. Like when Moray came back in, it was like, <laughs> I thought we were all done with this Moray shit. Oh, uh, yeah. No. Mm-mm. So that was a look. So yeah, so after that, then it, uh, then I started cooking along. And like I said, Key and Peele started small and gradually and slowly grew and became a th- my calling card now because it, it's brought up in every interview that I do. Which well, it's like a million calling cards because you've done like every genre there is to do. <laughs> exactly. I sort of feel like, I mean, seriously, if somebody wanted to hire you to do, you know, a giant sci-fi epic, you have a reel for that. If somebody wanted a romantic comedy, you have a reel for that. I actually, yes, I, I need to build all those reels, by the way. I've sort of thought that there's a way I can do it on a website where I I have clips from dozens and dozens of different ones and mm-hmm. you literally can fabricate a reel just by clicking on my that, genre. I would spend hours on that actually if 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 you had a website where it's like build your own Charles reel and exactly. it's like romantic yes. comedy with robots. Yes. Bleep blarp. Yes, if anyone out there wants to donate their time in building me that uh, website, I'll be I'll be <laughs> delighted. Um but that's something I do need to get to. Yeah. It, it is funny when I look back on it and it would be fun to see all those genre clips in a row. <laughs> but seriously, if you got hired tomorrow to work on the walking dead, you would know exactly what to do and you would know exactly how to get their look. Cause you've had to do it already. I'd like to think so. Yes. Yes. I would like to think so. Now, do you think that there's a specific look? I, I, I think that there's kind of a Charles Pappert look, but do you think that there's a specific look that you achieved there? I, I don't know that I would say that I could look at a shot and tell that it was yours, but there's, there's a certain quality to the lighting. Like I, there's a certain attention to the detail in the lighting that I, that I, when I'm watching your work, I know is there. Well, you know, I'd always thought that I was a chameleon in terms of look, that I didn't have my defining look, that it tailored to each project. And I've realized in the last few years that I do have more of a style than I thought I did. Um, and also I've been doing comedy pretty exclusively for the last four years. Yeah. Um, and right now I'm about to start a, uh, a new series for MTV and looking at the pilot and talking to the creators of the show, there's a much... It, it adheres into that sort of looser Sundance indie vibe, mm-hmm. you know, handheld and flares and letting things go a little bit. Transparent kind of looking? Even rougher than that. Even Really? I think, yeah. Because I think that transparent um, has a lot of very beautiful imagery in it that even though it's got a looseness to it, it's not, it's not dogmatic. I think there's a lot of different looks going on yeah. in there at the same time. I'm very impressed by the way that show looks and feels because it... it it doesn't feel comedy 
Yeah, you know, yeah. The, and I think that's also the way it's written. But I feel like it, it looks accidentally beautiful. Like yes, they happen yes. to get the right beautiful moment, but it, it happens like with such regularity that you realize, no, that's just the style they're hitting. Yeah, exactly. And there there's some cameramen who, uh, and cam- camera people, who are able to achieve that look. And I've been sort of a little bit jealous because I haven't had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And now that that's such a popular thing, I, I specifically was interested in this show because I was, this is my opportunity to do that, is to get out of my comfort zone and let the not only natural light, but accidents happen and things that look accidental. And can I create that? Because that's what really fascinates me is the idea of like, yeah, that's fine if the sun happens to be there and it strikes the face, but what if we have to do that on stage? And now I have to set a light that will replicate the sun hitting in a way that we would normally kind of clean up. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have some fun with that, I think. That'll be cool. Yeah, I want to get out of my element a little bit, do some stretching. Uh, for a long time, I was very content shooting comedy. I'm now, it's it's nice that comedy no longer looks like comedy. You can not you can click around to different shows and not know it's funny until you see A, a funny actor in it, yeah. or B, actually listen to what they're saying. But we've really escaped from the confines of classic comedy, especially the way networks always wanted it to be seen which is really cool. So as I was sort of getting to the point where I'm going, mm, it'd be good to shoot a drama, kind of sneak something a little bit more dramatic in there and let it play dark and not see both eyes all the time. We're getting closer to that with comedy now, which is great. I just enjoy working in the, the comedy genre. I have a lot of friends in it. It's I like being around comedy. Um, I like the crafting of comedy. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fun way to spend the day for me. Well, I think that's a that's a great place to leave it. Charles Pappert, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, Ben Rock. <laughs> I do all the Ben Rocks out there. That's great. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, man. Bye-bye. All right, so that was Charles Pappert. Thanks again, Charles. Charles, you're awesome. And I think Charles has the singular distinction of probably being recorded and then released the fastest of all of our guests. Yes, congratulations, Charles. You had the shortest wait of any of our guests. you're even still alive and not dead of old age yet (laughs) hey ben it's that time in the show again where i talk about how awesome hedge for mac is how awesome is hedge for mac it's pretty awesome so i set it up to copy god i don't even know how many terabytes but a massive amount of data from my drobo system to some spinning drives i decided that i didn't want to completely rely on my drobo which is i don't know if you're familiar with drobo but drobo is basically like um it's like raid for dummies, I guess is the best way to call it. So like if you have any, <laughs> if you, this episode not brought by Drobo, <laughs> I don't think they would, they would be insulted by that because it really is. It's very simple. It's dirt simple to use a Drobo. But if you run into a problem with a Drobo, you're kind of locked into their whole infrastructure and you don't really have a sort of a general way to get your data back. So I decided, hey, Drobo's doing fine for me for my archive of storage. I'd like to have another backup of storage. I set it up through Hedge for Mac and walked away. When I came back, everything was backed up and everything was checksummed. Worked out great. That's pretty sweet. I need to get into using that because I have a horrible uh, habit of uh, just dragging stuff over from the finder and it has hosed me once or twice in the past. You know, you're not the only one. I've actually spoken to someone at a major Fortune 500 company, and he was telling me about all of the video assets that they have. And it is a combination of like IKEA shelves and shoeboxes and spinning drives and LTO tape and just like this nightmare of stuff that is poorly organized. And he's like, well, we're never going back to any of this stuff. Well, when it's organized like that, I guarantee you it's you're never going back to it. But.
And don't forget, there is a cool promo code at hedgeformac.com forward slash cinematography. You'll save 20%. 20%. And it's not even that expensive to begin with. No, so it's 99 bucks. So it, it's a bargain, actually. It's totally, it's worth every penny. The first time that you, all your footage gets corrupted and you don't have it anymore, you will wish you had spent that $80. And you know what's actually kind of funny, and I, I don't know, maybe if this is uh, appropriate to share on the podcast, but we technically bought the software. I mean, he offered us a license, and then when he wanted to sponsor, this is the this is the Hedge for Mac guy. Mm-hmm. Um, his name's Paul. He's an awesome guy. I actually said, your software is totally worth it. I'm going to give you back $99 and Whoa. buy your software. So we're putting our money where our mouth is. I didn't know about the discount code. I could have saved 20%. Son of a bitch. <laughs> anyway, Hedge for Mac, cool software. Totally check them out. So let's move to the war story. All right. War story this time is from Tony Libertori. Tony Libertori, who is a top flight storyboard artist, one of the best storyboard artists working today. And he would be ashamed and humiliated to hear me say that. But it's true, Tony. You're one of the best. Wait, wait, wait a second. We're having someone who's not a camera person, a cinematographer, a former cinematographer, director, technologist here on the show. Yes, this is something that we do. And it's because, can can you believe it? But there are so many people who are involved in the image creation portion of a movie or television program. And it all starts and quite often is entirely crafted, at least the the design of the shot from the storyboard storyboard artist. And I'm really glad that Tony was able to do it for us. Yeah, we'll get into this more in his actual interview. I think that there's an idea in people's heads. I know there used to be the idea in my head that a director sits in a room with a storyboard artist and dreams up shots and the storyboard artist draws down what's in the director's brain. <clears throat> yeah, that's <laughs> not how it works. That is totally not and how it works. Tony, who is... If work- I had a gong, I would ring it. <laughs> Tony <laughs> has worked on... Uh, Several, uh, I think the last four or five Fast and Furious movies. He's worked on Captain America Civil War and Winter Soldier. He's currently working on the new Black Panther movie. He's worked on, uh, he worked with David Fincher on a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that didn't get made. But he is like one of the tippy top best storyboard artists. And I, and I think that uh, I want act too. class act. Oh, absolutely. As you'll see, because he curses more in his war story than anyone ever has. No, but I feel like it brings a very interesting perspective because he's doing uh, what he's doing is cinematography in a very, very specific sense. And and really, his imprint is all over some of the biggest movies you've seen in the last like seven years. Here is Tony Libertori's war story. And now war stories. I was watching the Gladiator Special Features DVD and I saw as one of the options on the menu, storyboards. When I clicked on it, I saw these beautiful illustrations by an artist named Sylvain Dupree. He had done these beautiful key scene illustrations for the tiger battle at the uh, end of the fight with Maximus. That was the first time I had ever seen storyboards and I was like, well, I could do that. That was one of the uh, the first times I had ever really had come into contact with storyboards and saw what it was and at that point decided, hey, you know, I think that might be something that I would like to try and do. At the time I was working at a screen door store, that was the first time I had access to the internet. Believe it or not, the screen store is not very busy. People aren't walking in and out getting window screens all the time, so I had a lot of downtime. So I'm researching online how to become a storyboard artist and trying to get as much information as I can. I come across this uh, kind of editorial piece that said, so you want to be a Hollywood artist. 
This guy's saying, well, being a storyboard artist is nearly impossible to do. Finding jobs is impossible. Getting on a film is impossible because you gotta be in the union. Getting into the union itself is impossible. You might wanna try and find an agent, but that might not even be the best idea because agents are fucking vampires. The whole industry is shit. Can I help you? No, beyond this, no, I can't help you. If you're still not deterred by all this, you know, good luck. I looked down at the bottom of the article and it's penned by Sylvain Dupree. So I'm like, motherfucker. The guy who gets me into storyboarding has now like taken all my hopes and dreams and has just like crushed them. I didn't come this far with my dream to just have you fucking step on it, even though you were the guy that kind of opened my eyes, if you will, to this whole job or this whole thing that I wanted to be a part of, and now you're stomping on my dream. So I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm still going forward with this. You know, because this guy got in somehow. Now, I'm not saying I'm as good as this guy, but if he got in, I can get in. You know, that was the thinking at the time. So I was like, I'm going for it. Besides what I have to lose, I'm working at a screen door store, so. <laughs> and now, short ends. All right, so that was Tony Libertori's War Story. Thank you, Tony. Fascinating stuff, Tony. More to come. Can't wait. I can't wait either. <laughs> I can't wait to dig in and edit Tony's interview. Hey. In Adobe Audition. Ben, we've reached that time of the show once again, nearly the end of the show, where we talk about our short ends, our obsession of the week. What is your obsession this week? Well, interestingly enough, there's a show that I've been interested in watching. This all ties into podcasts. It does. You ready to hear the unified field theory of podcasts? Yes. Okay. So there's a guy named Brian Kopelman who has a podcast called The Moment, but he's also a well-renowned uh, screenwriter. He wrote Rounders and a bunch of other really great things, right? So I've been hearing him on his podcast talk about his Showtime show, Billions. Now, I have Showtime, but I, I missed the first episode, and I didn't really dip my toe into it very much. So on the way home from podcast movement, you see where this is going, mm. on the airplane, I could watch certain Showtime shows. And I was like, hey, let me try out that Showtime show, Billions, which is primarily shot by a guy named Jake Polanski. They had the first two episodes, watched them on the plane, came home, immediately started binging my way through the rest of the season. And uh, I'm, I'm, uh, there's uh, 10 episodes. I'm at about episode seven now. First of all, I mean, Jake Polanski is not the only DP on it, but I think he's the main one. His name comes up more than anyone else's. He did Black Mirror. Black Mirror. He did Senna. He's, he's done a, a bunch of, uh, he's a still photographer. He's done a bunch of second unit AFI grad. The show looks gorgeous and it is one of the most compelling uh, TV shows I've seen in a long time. And it's not the kind of thing I usually go for because it's about high stakes, like hedge fund jerks, uh, you know, kind of clashing with the SEC and, and the, the U.S. attorney's office. Would you say it looks like a billion bucks? You were saving that one up. I could see you. I saw that glint in your eye. I was like, I better go. <laughs> yes, that, that that's true. I couldn't help it. The show's called Billions. I it actually is. say it looks like a million bucks. This <laughs> looks like a billion bucks. The leads are uh, Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis and uh, Malin Ackerman and Maggie Siff. I was uh, not familiar with Maggie Siff's work, although when I looked her up on IMDb, I saw that she's been in a lot of things I've seen over the years. But those three are just amazing. The entire supporting cast is amazing. And it's uh, it's just a super compelling, interesting drama that's that's basically a giant wrestling match, uh, a clash of wills. And uh, the cinematography 
is is underlining like all these places that we don't go. The, you know, the the smoke filled rooms and the exclusive clubs in the huge estate in New York City. That's you know, New York State. That's got a beautiful, gorgeous swimming pool and everything. And the movie just looks. It, it, it's just a gorgeous show to watch. And it's a great example, in my opinion, of how cinematography can underscore the, the thematic clashes within, uh, within a story and to take a story that in the wrong hands is, is a talky show. No one's beating each other up for the most part. It's mostly people talking in boardrooms. Yeah. And that can get super boring if it's done wrong. And this is handled in such a visual and cinematic way. I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, well, you are the second person within a month to recommend Billions, so I guess I will have to give it a shot. Yes. So what is your pet obsession of the week? Uh, My short end this week is a company uh, out of New Zealand called Syrup, and they spell it a little bit funny. They spell it S-Y-R-P, and they make a... When did when did fouls go out of fashion? You know what? I think it has to do with the uh, the URLs that are available, uh, and yeah, like a Fiverr. There's an extra R on there, and some of these other ones. Well, like our our podcast syndication company is Blueberry, and it's B L U B R R Y. Yeah, that's um, that's annoying. So uh, <laughs> more than once, I've actually spelled that B L U E, and then gone, oh, don't oh doing son it, of a bitch, wrong. Uh, well, Syrup makes a really cool product called the Genie, and uh, the Genie, I think very appropriately named, it sort of, uh, you know, obeys your commands, it, you know, obeys every, your every wish. It's a motorized motion control system. It's not silent, so you can't usually use it for pictures, but for time lapse and for MOS stuff, really impressive. It has a very clever system in which it trolleys from one end of the slider that you can either buy as a kit or you can attach it to other sliders and then you can have multiple axes there's even three axes of movement that this thing can do which is pretty impressive if you ever wanted to do those crazy time-lapse shots where uh, the camera trucks or dollies from left to right and also tilts and also pans you can do all of these things at the same time and you control it with like an ipad or an, an iphone app and this stuff is not very expensive we're talking about their fully loaded kits about 1700 bucks and you can scale it on down from there we've been playing around with it a lot in the office and it's just it's really fun to go like oh i want to go 20 degrees this way and i want to move three feet and i want it to happen in five seconds and go and then you can preview and watch this whole thing happen wow. or you can make it really slow and it can trigger whatever camera you've got so sony panasonic canon nikon and a bunch of others you can you can have it trigger once for video you can have it trigger individual frames for high resolution stills anyway this is really revolutionizing the sort of market like you know there's other people who've been making stuff for this like kessler and things like that but this is a really aggressive price point and gives you a tremendous amount of functionality i don't even know if we have them up on our website yet but we've been playing with it for about a month now and hopefully by the time this podcast goes live you know people will be able to go to hotrodcameras.com and actually see and check out some of the stuff we've been doing Uh, at the very least find the products but can't recommend syrup highly enough for the money there's nothing else out there that is doing what this is doing the most important question is uh, how do cats react to it Ooh, great question Uh, you could put a laser pointer on it and boy have probably hours and hours of fun (laughs) and record your cat going after that laser pointer at the same time oh my god but no uh, I haven't tried that yet I don't have a cat Oh, man. Sorry to bring up a painful subject. That's okay. (laughs) You've got dogs. How do they feel about laser pointers? Uh, One of my dogs could give a crap about laser pointers. The other one gets really excited for about 10 minutes and then gets really bored. (laughs) 
There it is. The difference between dogs and cats. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, uh, I think that wraps us up for this week, this yep. month, whatever. We're uh, fully energized from podcast movement. We're going to do our best to uh, crank out more episodes more quickly than we have, which it would be hard to do them slower than we have. Well, I got to say that uh, we've said this many times. Oh, we're now we're going to work faster and harder and we have stuff in the can. I kind of believe it this time. I, I really do believe it. This is not like an empty threat. Like, I believe that we're going to do this because... You and I are both pretty energized and jazzed up after, you know, several days in Chicago listening yeah. to podcasters. Well, you, you see the real. Po- Here's the thing. Uh, not to revisit this too hard, but like I feel like I've been listening to podcasts since like 2005. And I feel like every time today I had a conversation with somebody about podcasts and I had to say, do you listen to podcasts? And I'm used to people saying like. Oh, do you have to listen to it on your computer? How much do they cost? How does it work? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like uh, to be in a room with a few thousand people who not only understood exactly what a podcast was, but most of them have their own podcast or are trying to do their own podcast. It was inspirational to kind of just see that there's this uh, oncoming wave of uh, citizen journalism and storytelling and uh, radio documentary and, and all kinds of formats that we're not even yet aware of. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, a lot of it hasn't even been uh, invented yet. And it was weird too, because uh, it, like we could network with other podcasters, but like, you know, like if we're talking to, you know, the, the fresh organic Apple podcast, we don't really have anything to talk to them about, you know, about cinematography. They don't care. Yeah. That, that, that was it was kind of interesting and a, and a lot of fun and a bit refreshing. I mean, we heard uh, someone speak about their choir podcast. Yeah. Let me tell you, I would never have sought out a podcast about choirs. I don't sing in a choir. I've never sung in a choir. But after listening to this person talk about what they do and how they approach their podcast, it sounds brilliant. And it's probably no wonder why they have tens of thousands of listeners every month. Yeah. I mean, it was a real inspiration. And I sort of feel like we've been doing this and sincerely doing this and wanting to do good with this. But I think that it kind of gave us a little bit of a direction that we can chart for ourselves really because that's kind of the deal with podcasts is that you can do it however you want to do it so it's i don't know that we're going to get to a point where we have a new episode dropping every wednesday afternoon at two but i do think that we can get to a point where we're doing more of these and hopefully being a value to people who are listening so to that end actually if you're finding value in what we're doing please reach out to us i'm uh, at neptune salad on twitter we also have a cinematography podcast twitter account which is at short ends endz that's or, right. Or is it E-N-Z? No, no, E-N-D-Z. That's right. Yeah, someone else is E-N-Z. Jerk. So. Sure. <laughs> so, so we have that. Reach out to us. Talk to us. We want to be of service to people who want to hear about cinematography. We want to give them what they're looking for. Yeah, and uh, also I think we're going to do a poll at some point to kind of get an idea of our demographics of like, who's listening to us? Is it 18 to 34-year-olds? Is it 50 plus? Who's listening to the show? We'd like to hear from you. We'd like to know. And if you have questions for us or thoughts or suggestions, and if you don't like what we're doing, tell us that too. We'd, we'd like to hear it. So Ilya, I've already told everyone where they can find me. Where can they find you? They can find me at Hot Rod Cameras uh, at hotrodcameras.com. You can find me now. I've split off from the Hot Rod Cameras uh, Twitter account. I now have at Ilya Friedman, which boy. Oh no. Yeah, I know. So I have like four people following me. So hey, if you. I'm one of them, I think. I think so. (laughs) So it's only been live for now a couple of weeks. So, but I will actually start to actively uh, let people know that now Hot Rod Cameras can stand on its own. It's doing its own thing. It doesn't need 
need me to be associated with their Twitter account, I'll have my own Twitter account. Thank you. Sweet. And all ideas and thoughts expressed there are of yours and do not reflect those of Hot Rod Cameras Incorporated. Or the Cinematography Podcast. Yeah. Well, or actually, well, they, they might. So. I sort of feel like all we do here is express our opinions. So <laughs> last but not least, please uh, look into Kay's Alatraxi, who composed all of our music. Uh, you can find his music at musicbykays.com. That's K-A-Y-S. Kays is an amazing composer. He, he's done features. He's done shorts. He uh, he did the music for my short that played at Tribeca. For God's sakes, give give Kays uh, 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 some love somewhere. And uh, that's about it. That's about it. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.